You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Episode 150, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Clarkson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today's expert is really amazing. It's David Caterno. He's the CEO and head of ePowered Benefits. And we are going to really explain why the healthcare system is so messed up. I've done a lot of episodes on this in the past, usually where we focus on one or two aspects of the payment system, insurance, the interplay between insurance and pharmaceuticals and hospitals. Dave Catorno really summarized things so well. You will have a profound understanding of why there's so much dysfunction. If you're a physician, you're going to understand why when you talk to insurance companies, they don't seem to really care about things you think they would care about. Uh, if you're a patient, why are you having these crazy bills? Why are insurance plans not getting better? Why are they worse? Why are they more expensive? Why, again, do the hospitals not seem to care about you? Why do insurance companies not seem to care about you? And I suppose on some level, you kind of intuitively know why those two entities don't really care that much for you because you're not really directly paying their bills. But ultimately, it's a very strange relationship we have with medicine as physicians, as patients, and, you know, the institutions that sort of run things. But David is going to really go into it deeply because he was a broker for insurance companies. He sold these packages. He interacted with the insurance companies. He's the one who would go to the hospitals and find what they're doing and find ways to make better deals. And with his new business, where he is essentially, much like Katie Tepton I had on earlier, many episodes ago, will help you set up your self-funded plan, but not just a self-funded plan, in which case you use the usual sort of healthcare players in your community. And that is very important because if you just use the same people who are doing things with the same products and plans they have in place, well, you're not going to save any money, right? I mean, you may change the risk a little bit. You might shave a couple percent off, but you're not going to make any significant savings. It's only through actually finding less expensive healthcare and usually higher quality healthcare are you going to actually move the needle It's for your employees or for your business. So if you are someone who has a small, medium-sized business, this is absolutely something you should listen to. If you're confused about why the third-party payer system doesn't work, this will be a great summation David does a great job of going through a bunch of uh, different aspects of it. And I, again, I can't recommend enough 
how much you're going to get from this episode. But I don't thank my patrons enough who are on patreon.com. So big shout out to Belen, Erte, Anthony, Tom, Brian, Pam, Jill, Brandon, Lucas. You guys are greatly appreciated. I can't tell you how much it means to me to have people who support the show financially make the show free for everyone else who's listening. If you think, boy, this is a great show, I would love to support it. I'd recommend you go to patreon.com slash the paradox and spelled the same way as the show with P-R-A-D-O-C-S. There you can become a supporter of the show for as little as $2 a month. And again, it not only provides financial support to help pay for just the services, we're now moving to video of the show, but also really, it's just so encouraging to have people who feel strongly enough about the show and what we're doing and talking about and really get a message out that I don't think a lot of places are. Uh, we focus on not only medicine, some COVID certainly, but really the payment system and finding people who are doing disruptive, innovative things in this healthcare space. And I hope you've learned a lot. I know I've used a lot of things that I've talked to as far as people uh, to not only change my practice, but sort of how we go about our business. And I hope you've gotten some of the things out of that too, as well as just a general understanding and hopefully kind of fun conversations. So today's absolutely fun conversation, super informative. And I hope you continue to share this show with your friends and family. This is a great one to share with them and colleagues because it's going to really encapsulate why the healthcare system is so messed up. Maybe not always uh, solutions for every person in every situation, but I think you're going to get an idea of what you should look for if you're in a business or if you're an individual looking for coverage. But without further ado, David Caterno from ePower Benefits in making sure you get a healthcare broker who works for you. Enjoy. Well, hi, I'm here with my new friend, David Catorno. He's the CEO and founder of ePower Benefits. And we're going to talk about healthcare as we always do in the show, but especially specific, we're going to talk about ways of disrupting medicine, which again, is pretty much all we talk about in this healthcare, <laughs> healthcare show. So David, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me, Eric. Well, I was really happy, pleased when you reached out to me because, um, you know, there are all just sorts of moving parts in, in healthcare. There are the people who are obviously delivering the care, the physicians, hospitals, surgery centers, et cetera. Uh, they're the people who are receiving the care or, you know, the patients, sometimes the physicians who are right next to the the patients, but there are always people who are in between. They're, you know, the the dreaded middlemen, uh, the people who are coordinating things. And that's sort of where you find yourself, right? And so why don't you describe exactly what, I guess, what you do or what you did and why you're, what you're doing now? Sure. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of middlemen in healthcare and health insurance, probably too many, but um, I would like to start sort of level set with all the listeners and say, we need to separate health insurance from healthcare. We often intermingle those two words. And if you ask most of America who their healthcare provider is, they're going to say Blue Cross and Blue Shield. And yet <laughs> Blue Cross and Blue Shield provides no healthcare whatsoever. Um, so I've been what most people would know as a broker to employers and employers fund about 50% of healthcare in the United States. Um, and uh, I was going into employers, bringing the likes of Blue Cross, United, Cigna, Netna, and it was a pretty sweet gig, Eric, because I never had to worry about getting paid because I got paid by the carriers and most employers will sooner not pay their power bill than they would not pay their health insurance bill. So I got a percentage of that premium every time they sent in a bill. And guess what? Their rates went up 10, 15, 20% a year. So guess what up else went up 10, 15, 20% a year? But that's not the only way I was paid. That's called disclosed compensation, but there's lots of undisclosed compensation. I get calls all the time, especially around this time of the year, 
they would say, David, uh, this is United Healthcare. Do you know if you write, write just one more group with us before the end of the year, you're going to get a $250,000 bonus? Or sometimes the other way, Blue Cross would call and say, David, if you lose one more group of yours this year to a competitor of ours, you're going to lose your $250,000 bonus. And it wasn't just checks. It was trips to Ireland, private cruises. I mean, it, they lavish on us. And I, I get into arguments with people sometimes, but um, they uh, they don't do it if it didn't work. Drug companies wouldn't advertise on TV if it didn't impact the amount of drugs being prescribed. Um, and so and and likewise, I mean, RVUs wouldn't be used if it didn't influence the way doctors uh, prescribe treatment. Sure. But it does and it is. And so what I say to a lot of people, I say a lot of people call our healthcare system broken. It's not broken. It's working exactly as it was designed to work. It just wasn't designed by employers, doctors, or patients. So it's not working well for those three entities, but it's working really well for a lot of people. I feel like uh, in many ways you can look at the healthcare system and say it's designed to spend the most amount of money possible. Uh, That's right. That you could, you probably couldn't design a better system for wasting money and you know sending money to places that aren't actually delivering any care or providing any value. Uh, yep. Our health system, whether it's you know pharmacy benefit managers, whether it's you know brokers or whoever, yep. um, so you're really exposing <laughs> things I hadn't really thought about the brokers, um, the broker aspect of things because uh, you know I was president of my anesthesia group for about four years. We have we have a broker, and mm-hmm. I think most large employers have brokers, people who go on the market, find plans. They, I mean, it, this is in theory, they negotiate with the insurance companies. They find the best plan. They're they they find you savings. They you know compare Aetna to Blue Cross to in our case be Priority and there's you know some other uh, United Healthcare whatever, yep. and then they come back to you with the plans that you here are the five options mm-hmm. for your employees an HMO uh, you know point of service care some sort of combination agent HSA or something, yeah, um, and you pay them some money but it's usually not a whole lot uh, from the employer because presumably they're getting their money from commissions like you said now this, can you I mean can you break down what where most of the revenue comes from these people, because, you know, uh, one of the, a truth in, in life, I suppose, when it comes to commerce is whoever pays the bills is who that is the real customer is, right? It's like, it's sort of like with Google, right? It's totally free, which means that you're the customer, you're, you're <laughs> right? Yep. Um, yeah. So I, first of all, I agree with you. And I say it, that a person works for whoever signs their paycheck and most brokers paychecks are signed by Blue Cross or United or Cigna or Aetna. And it really is, they are a seller's agent. They can purport themselves to be a buyer's agent, which they frequently do. But I mean, they're working for the seller of those products and services. And so uh, typically the most common is a commission where it's, I don't know, three to 5% of this ever ballooning premium. You don't need to write a lot of business to be making a decent income as a commission-based broker. Now, some um, insurance companies have, gone to flat fee or per employee per month, which I acknowledge does remove the perverse incentive, but it doesn't align the incentive. It doesn't do anything to do that. And there's an Upton Sinclair quote that I've been saying a lot lately. It says, uh, do not, and I wish it were more gender neutral, but I'll say it as it was, do not expect a man to understand something in which his paycheck is dependent upon him not understanding it. <laughs> yes. And let me tell you how, how important that is. Uh, what I changed first before I took this different path was how I get paid. And I moved to a performance-based model. So with our clients, we're contractually prohibited from receiving any money from anywhere except the client. And typically we have a bonus at the end of the year from the client for doing what the client wants us to do, which is actually lower healthcare costs. Now, at the time that I made this deal with that first client, I realized 
I didn't know anything, nothing about healthcare costs, despite the fact that I had quote unquote been in the business for at that point, 18 years. And you described a process that's really broken and let me, and every employer goes through it, but let me, let me give you an analogy. Let's pretend that you and your wife went to buy a car and your budget was 300 bucks a month for that car. But the salesperson was so good that you walk out with a thousand dollar a month car payment. So a few months later, you and your wife sit at the coffee table and you say, we need to come up with a strategy to lower this monthly car payment. Do you think if you called up Geico, even if you save 15%, 15 minutes later, is that going to lower your car payment to the bank at all? Not even a little bit, right? What if you raise your deductible on your car insurance from 500 to 1,000? Is that going to lower your monthly car payment? Not a little bit. What if you decide to self-insure your car insurance? You're going to just put money in the bank and pay for the accident if and when they occur. Is that going to lower your car payment? No. Right this notion that we can switch from Blue Cross to United to Cigna to Aetna or from HMO to PPO to HSA, they don't work. As a matter of fact, the Kaiser Family Foundation did a study of the average single and family premiums of HMOs, POSs, PPOs, indemnities, and HSAs, and they were all within a few percentage points of each other. My stroke of genius for the day, there's only one way to pay less for healthcare. You have to pay less for healthcare. <laughs> right. That's yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. So when I tied my revenue to that, they say that necessity is the mother of all invention. I had to figure out a way to pay less for healthcare. And when I really dug into how healthcare is delivered and paid for, I was, I was already expecting dysfunction, but I am still a decade later, sometimes smacked in the face at how dysfunctional delivery of care and payment of care is in this country. And that's what we change within our health plans. If, you, if your broker or consultant is not talking about how to change how care is paid for, how much is it determined to cost, and how you're going to source it at the highest quality and the lowest cost and determine those things, then they're not going to change anything. Yeah. I mean, that's what I talked to Keith Smith recently. And then even before way back at the beginning of the show with episode 12, I mean, we, we discussed about the, just the dysfunction of the, of the insurance, the model, I guess you'd say that, that there's, there is not an incentive for the insurance companies really to lower costs in some ways, which seems counterintuitive, right? You think that they want to lower their costs so they can remain competitive in the market so they can, you know, sell the product for less, than their competitors, but that does not seem to be the case, right? There's there's a there's actually a, a perverse incentive for them to have higher prices because they get, you know, just as you mentioned earlier, your your fee is based in many ways on on uh, on a percentage of of how much is spent, right? And so right. the more that's spent, the more yep. and or the savings perceived savings they provide, they get a percentage of it. They save money. Explain, I guess, explain the process because, again, for most people, this is the hardest thing to understand because you mm -hmm. immediately think hospitals, insurance companies, they're absolutely um, at uh, loggerheads, right? They're they're one's fighting to keep the raise prices, the other's fighting to lower them, which which would make sense, right? In in a in normal competition, right? You have your supply and demand that they're fighting each other to keep things yep. to find some equilibrium. Yeah, unfortunately, that's not the fight that goes on. Um, and I'm going to give you a couple of examples. Uh, the first is, you know, pick any metropolitan area, you know, pick uh, Minneapolis, for example. If any employer in Minneapolis left United Healthcare, would United Healthcare's balance sheet even be impacted by a little? No, they're $280, $260 billion company. But what if Mayo Clinic left their network? Then every employer, in every area that Mayo Clinic has a location is going to leave. So problem number one is that makes the hospitals more the customer of the insurance company than 
the employer, the patient, or anyone else. Now it gets worse than that. Let's say, uh, let's pretend that I run United Healthcare for the state of Minnesota. And right around now, actually a few months ago, I had to file my rates for my fully insured plans for 2022 because those need to be filed and approved by the Department of Insurance. So I'm going to go to my team of really well-paid actuaries, and I'm going to ask them, how much do you think everyone in the state of Minnesota is expected to spend on my plan in 2022 for medical and prescription costs? Because those are the biggest expenses of any plan, right? So let's pretend they come back with a number of $850 million. I'm just making this up, but they come back with $850 million. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to set my premiums around the state to ensure that I bring in a billion dollars. That's going to leave me 150 million to cover my overhead. And then I better damn sure send some profit back to the mothership as a privately traded company, a publicly traded company. Sorry. Um, So 2022 comes along and every month it's preordained. I'm collecting one twelfth of a billion dollars. But you know, all the cost containment tools that every carrier throws at every employer and every member every year. Let's pretend in 2022, they actually work. And instead of 850 million, everyone in Minnesota only spends $425 million in claims. I ask every employer and even people in our industry, I still collected a billion dollars. Did my profit go up or go down? And everybody with very rare exceptions says, of course your profit went up. You collected a billion, you spent only 425 million. Right. That's not true. The medical loss ratio provision of the Affordable Care Act says that I must spend 85 cents of every dollar Otherwise, I have to return the money to the members of the plan. So I would have to return not just the $425 million of claims I didn't spend, but 75 million of the 150 million of overhead and profit. So literally, if a carrier were to shrink costs, claims, lower claims, they would then violate the only fiduciary responsibility they have, which is to their shareholders to deliver profit. Now, some employer might be listening to this and say, oh, phew, I'm self-funded, so that doesn't apply to me. You're right. The medical loss ratio provision doesn't apply to you, but in your wisdom, you put yourself on all the same administration platforms, the same PPO contracts, the same pharmacy contracts, and the same medical management vendor in which those things do apply. Do you think that somehow you're going to be immune from that inflation? So what I tell people is we have Stockholm syndrome in this country with the health insurance carriers and and everybody think about it from this perspective. As as a broker, I ask the insurance company, what products and services can I sell my clients and how much are you going to pay me to do it? Employers say, what benefits can I offer my employees and how much is it going to cost me? Doctors say, what prescriptions and treatments can I provide and how how much are you going to pay me? Hospitals say, how long can we keep them in the bed for and how long is it going to take you to pay us? Like we all look to the insurance company to ask permission and they're controlling the gates in such a way that they benefit as costs go up and quality of care goes down. That's why cost of care keeps going up and quality of care keeps going down. But it is fixable. It is changeable. And many of the tools already exist. Well, before you, you go into that, I, you know, I, I, when you look at the insurance companies, I mean, people, one of the solution is people say they self-funded, right? And as you mentioned, so... Uh, you know, large employers they say we're gonna we're gonna not buy the package plan from Blue Cross or whatever, and we're going to we're gonna self fund this. How is that not a solution to the to the problem? Because a fully insured plan has several components. It has a plan administrator. If you're with Blue Cross, that is of course Blue Cross. Mm-hmm. It has a PPO network. And if you're with Blue Cross, that is, of course, Blue Cross. It has uh, PBM. And if you're with Blue Cross, it's almost certainly either owned by Blue Cross or um, it's one that they share revenue on. Um, They have a medical management vendor owned by Blue Cross. So 
why, when all the players are the same, why do you expect there to be anything different? But let's go a step further. Um, the town I live in, in North Carolina, there's a Lowe's home improvement is headquartered here. So there's this massive campus. And I happen to know that Lowe's has a self-funded Aetna plan managed by Aetna. So let's pretend that a Lowe's employee goes to the hospital and Joe, the plumber, he has 10 employees. He's a fully insured Aetna plan. He also has an employee that goes to the same hospital, same provider, same procedure, and they're both coded and billed exactly the same. What's the price of that procedure relative to each other? Exactly the same, right? Because they both flow through the same Aetna PPO contract. So this notion that larger employers get better pricing is BS. Maybe they get a little better pricing on the fringe. So maybe that 15%, that's their fixed cost. Maybe they save 10% on that. But let's remember 10% of 15% is 1.5%. Hardly anything to write home about. But the huge majority of care is costing the same. And Carriers, I know um, United, I, we took over a client that had, they were self-funded with United Healthcare. And do you know, even though they were self-funded, they were paying United Healthcare a $25,000 a year fee to allow them to bring their own PBM in instead of using Optum, which is owned by United Healthcare. Why do you think that is? Because they make money. The, the, the ugliness on drug pricing, it's really the drugs that I think there are such easy things we could do to make some things illegal that are already illegal in other areas of our economy that are just really dirty and really ugly and really hurt the patient more than anything. Uh, but the point is, is, is you think you're going to be more transparent, but here's what I would encourage any self-funded employer to do. The contract between your insurance carrier and the provider is the contract that really determines your price. And as you know, the carrier has tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of those contracts. I implore any employer listening to this to go to their insurance company and say, can I look at one of those contracts that's actually determining my price? Just one. They're going to say no. You basically, as a cell phone employer, sign one contract that obligates you to the provisions of hundreds of thousands of other contracts that you can never see. And let's remember, you touched on it earlier, when a hospital and an insurance company go to negotiate their contract. They go into this backdoor sealed off room couched in tons of non-disclosure agreements and they both benefit from costs going up. And we wonder why costs keep going up. The reason they fight it out is because the insurance company doesn't want their costs going up any faster than their competition. Or to your point earlier, they price themselves out of the market. But even medical management, when they deny care, what they typically do is they deny the high value, low cost care. They deny the physical therapy. So you're more likely to have the back surgery. They deny the care that is most likely to get you well quickest so that you can go to a place where you're going to get well the most expensively if you get well at all, because that's what benefits the insurance company. They don't make money by denying claims. They make money by paying claims. And the more claims they pay, the more money they make. And I'm always surprised with um, nowadays, there are lots of insurance companies that are actually affiliated with healthcare systems. And so it's, it, it's, it's stunning to me that that even is, is something that exists. I mean, that's the, the most vertical integration that you could possibly have, right? You have the people. Mm -hmm. And there are um, even you talk to people who work within those sort of systems. I mean, I worked within one. I mean, I know other people who do too. And there's still like this, there's this, there's this tension between the, well, you know, the insurance company didn't approve it in this hospital. You're like, well, that doesn't, you'd think that they would work. There'd be some, you think there'd be some efficiency. Like if you're going to do this, that you would be able to provide better care or better continuity or something like that, that it would actually benefit the, the insurance company would be able to get their 
their processes that they say would maybe you know provide higher quality and lower cost, it'd be easier to implement it within the healthcare system if that healthcare system you know is owned by them or vice versa. Yeah, that yeah. doesn't seem to be the case either. No, no, none of them want quality to go up and care to go down. That's uh, that's less revenue. I mean, the whole system is built on quantity, and you know they even when it was just healthcare systems combined together. They would say, well, we're going to consolidate billing and we're going to buy supplies in bigger bulk. You know, I want to give a call out to Dr. Keith Smith, who, who I know was on your podcast recently. And um, I, I've been to his facility. I had surgery at his facility. And since 1993, when he opened up his doors, he's had four price adjustments and all four of those price adjustments have been down. But if he's buying the same anesthesia, the same IV right. pumps, the same beds, the same implants, why are his costs going down and everyone else is going up? I'm going to tell you why. In the last 20 years, we've had a 5% decrease of clinical staff in this country. And that's pre-COVID. It might even be worse now. But at the same time period, there was a 2,800% increase in administration staff. When I walked to Keith Smith's facility, he had one part-time person in his billing office. That was it. So we build health plans that support and embrace places like Keith Smith because we never make him have to file a claim. All he does is pay an invoice or get, send an invoice. And then with our plans that we build for employers, when patients go to places like Keith Smith or thousands of them that we have relationships around the country, we completely waive out of pockets. And that's another pressure point that's in the system. Hospitals on average write off about 75% of patient responsibility. And as deductibles and co-pays have gone up, think about this waterfall for a second. I'm an average American. I have a high deductible health plan. I need insulin, but I can't afford it. So I'm taking it every other day, not as often as I should, right. which of course increases the likelihood of something major happens. So now something major happens. Now I'm rushed to the hospital. Now I have to pay the $5,000 I didn't have to begin with. And that's why the number one cause of bankruptcy in the US is medical bills with about two thirds of those people having had health insurance. So now I go into bankruptcy, but I get the care that I need. Okay, well that large claim Res that will result in a large write-off because the hospital gets part of the claim. They write off the 5,000 from me because I didn't have it. So when that hospital goes to negotiate with the insurance company, they say, hey, we're writing off all this bad debt because you're slinging all these high deductible health plans. We need an increase in our reimbursement rate as a result. And as we described before, the hospital is very happy to do that. It benefits them. It benefits the hospital. So they give an increase in reimbursement rate or reduce the discount or allow the starting price to be higher, whatever you want to call it. And that results in higher premiums for the next year for the employers in the market. And right. the only thing that the average broker can do when those premiums go up is make the deductibles higher to offset some of that increase, which causes more write-offs, higher reimbursement rates, worse plans. And that's why we have this increased cost and deterioration of benefits going on. And employers that we talk to now, not our clients, but the ones that come to us, they're typically coming to us because now they're in among the worst plan that the ACA allows you to have. So you can't raise your out-of-pockets anymore than what the ACA allows. And they still get a 10, 20, we've seen 40 and 60 and 80% rate increases this year more frequently than we're used to. So this, I call that the circling the drain that most employers are slowly doing. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, from an insurance standpoint, actuarially right they can they can figure out your cost they can they can move them around but they end up make they can set it so they end up making the same amount of money and you you pay the same you just pay you pay the same essentially but it's just in a different a different manner right like you look at the different plans and options you have within your company that you get from the broker and they all end up being about you end up spending spending about the same amount of money 
but just in Doctor. different ways. You know, like, do you feel, are you gambling? Do you feel like you're not going to actually spend have any healthcare expenses? And you go with the high deductible because your mm-hmm. chance may be a little less. But it's, from the insurance company standpoint, just like you know, life insurance, they know the likelihood of someone's going to die. They know what percentage and they know how to calculate yep. the cost, right? So yep. they end up, I guess, in the same spot in the end. Yeah, the difference though is health, all types of insurance are meant to pay for low frequency, high intensity, low predictability claims. But health insurance is high frequency, highly predictable, low cost claims. We expect that. And then we still want it to pay for the high cost stuff too. Insurance just doesn't work that way. It's simply not sustainable for any insurance to work like that. If our car insurance paid for every you know tire and right. brake, and we, your car insurance would be a lot different too. Yeah, I've never had a claim for a new battery. I just go and buy, go to the store and buy one. Um, so, so then let's talk about the alternatives, right? So we talk about how broken the system is, which I don't know that you find anybody outside of people who are profiting from the system to say, yeah, it's great. Uh, so how do you fix this? I've talked to Katie Talento and she directly mm-hmm. contracts with everybody. I mean, is that similar to what you do or, or how do you set something up for yeah. an employee, small, medium, large size employers? So, I mean, we first off, we have to build them a health plan that's partially self-funded. Now, I want to just talk about that. I, employers all the time say self-funded is riskier. No, it's not. It can be riskier uh, if either your broker doesn't know how to build a self-funded plan or um, you choose for it to be riskier. Because what most employers don't understand is in a fully insured plan, there's reinsurance levers in there. It's called pooling points. It's determined by the insurance carrier. So, but, and they're typically doing much higher pooling points than you would do on your own because they're aggregating your business over hundreds or thousands of other employers. But in a partially self funded plan, we'd pick an independent third party administrator like the Kempton Group with Jay Kempton, who started FMMA with Keith Smith. Um, and, um, and they have to be paid in the right way. So there are some TPAs that make money very similarly to the insurance carriers. They make money on claims. They make money on percent of savings. They make money on uh, spread pricing from the pharmacy benefit manager. Um, and we don't allow that. We, our TPAs are going to charge a per employee per month, and that's their only revenue. But right off the bat, you know, that puts us, if we're competing against another uh, broker, for example, who does self-insured, a lot of the carriers will sell a level funded plan or a self-funded plan, sorry, with a $5 per employee per month admin fee. If you just let us handle everything, yeah, come on. you know, they're making it so much multiple times over on the back end. Um, but, um, but we don't mind a 30 or $40 PEPM they're, they should be paid. They're, they're the, the quarterback of the team. They're the ones who sure. protect the pocketbook the most day-to-day. You should want to pay them properly because they play a very important role. Then we put in a similar transparent pharmacy benefit manager. And uh, there's so much that goes on in, in pharmacy benefit management. But the, the couple of things we don't allow in particular is spread pricing and uh, any of the rebate holdbacks. And we prefer a pharmacy benefit manager that gets paid a per employee per month or a per member per month because we source medications outside of the PBM and retail channels as much as possible. And I'll give you one strategy we use that eliminates six and seven figure drugs from the, from the cost completely. Have you ever heard at the end of a commercial on TV, the drug commercial, it says, if you cannot afford your medication, AstraZeneca may be able to help. And they say really fast and really low. Well, what they're describing there is something called a PAP or a prescription assistance program. Now, that's for someone that doesn't have coverage for the drug. Let me explain what I mean. If you have a $5,000 deductible and you have $500 in your checking account or savings account, you have coverage for the drug, even though you can't afford it. 
This is for someone who has no insurance at all or whose plan specifically excludes this drug. Now, most PBMs are not going to let you exclude a drug at your will because they make money every time they fill a drug. Right. But that's talking about something that every manufacturer who deals with Medicare must offer. And basically, it, it works on a multiple of the federal poverty level. And it also is tied to the cost of the drug. So as the drug prices have gone up, so too has the multiple of the federal poverty level. People can be making well into the six figures and still qualify. So what we do is, is we just we see the drug pop up in the fill. We usually, you know, stop it from the first time. Although if we if they need it, we'll let it go through one time to give them a supply. And then we'll check their income and household size. And if they qualify for the PAP, we have a person that walks them through the process. And we're 99% successful because we do the work in advance. And once we're approved for that PAP, um, then the drug company sends that drug to that member at no cost, uh, no cost to the plan, no cost to the member. And that's how we get rid of those some of those really expensive drugs. Would you say that's one of the larger, I mean, when you look at uh, potential savings, when you start up a program like this, Pharmaceuticals has got to be one of the largest ones, right? You always it, it imagine is. hospital and ICU stays and those sorts of things, but it's probably pharmaceuticals, which is the most common point that you're going to save money, right? If you break inpatient and outpatient out, then pharmacy is bigger. But if you combine inpatient and outpatient together, then hospitalization is bigger. But they're each about, a, they're, you know, 20 to 25% each inpatient and outpatient and prescriptions with the rest going to providers. Only 4% roughly goes to emergency care, urgent care, DME. A lot of people are like, er, emergency care is a big cost. It's really not um, comparatively to everything else that's going on. Sure. Focus it's on the predictable, planable things, not the ones you can't predict. Right. I mean, I guess it's, it's fair to say emergency care is expensive, but it's, it's the, the, the occurrence rate is a lot lower than the amount of people who go to the hospital for a gallbladder or whatever it might be. Right. One of the interesting things that I that I learned with this whole um, uh, process of sort of separating the different components of healthcare insurance, like a package, is is this is it called stop loss? Is that where the yeah. where essentially uh, it's the the insurance company insures like, for catastrophic care for you as well? Uh, it's just part mm -hmm. of your package, and That's so if right. you're self funded and and you actually have to purchase that insurance as well, and so you say, well we'll cover the first 100,000 or whatever it might be, right? And then everything beyond that is a different insurance company that actually provides coverage for that care. I never realized that that was part of a usual, a typical, I guess you should say, typical insurance yeah. package and that you can actually just provide for that yourself and then keep some funds back and so that maybe the next year you don't need it. Yeah, but the key is you have to change how care is paid for or your right. plan is going to be no better running than when you were fully insured. So, for example, I mentioned the type of PBMs we use. We also don't use the services of a PPO network because the second you stick a PPO network in place, you've lost all control of costs. You, the contract is driving and again, they won't let you see the contract. So most of our plans have no PPO network at all. We have a couple that have a doctor only network and we use other pricing methodologies around the plan. And our most preferred pricing methodology by far is a place like Surgery Center of Oklahoma, where they just say, hey, here's our price and here's our quality. Nice. But quality is a big piece too of our plans. When we steer people somewhere to where we eliminate the out-of-pocket, which we do all the time. And that's why we don't, I don't believe in HSAs. As a matter of fact, I know I'm going to upset some people, but I call HSA compatible plans the single most damaging strategy that my industry has ever unleashed on the unsuspecting American public because it is damaging. And when it first came out and it was so much cheaper that employers were funding the full deductible, it didn't change anything, but 
okay. But what's eroded? The deductibles have gone up and the contribution from the employer has gone down. And now most employers are woefully underfunded in their HSA account. And all they have is a crap. I mean, let me, let me tell you what an HSA compatible plan is. It's the crappiest of crappiest plans that the ACA allows you to buy, period. It just right. That's just it. And then <clears throat> with HSAs, you know, obviously the, the thought was, is that is the patients control and direct their, their healthcare money, their dollars, mm -hmm. they're going to look for low cost alternatives that are high quality, mm -hmm. whatever. Yeah. What <clears throat> is that just, does that just not happen because you're, you're within the confines of a lousy system and there's just no exit to get to a spot that you can save money. There's a few pre reasons. The system said, here, we're going to give you more skin in the game, and we want you to be a good consumer. But what do you need to be a good consumer? You need cost and quality. It's impossible to be a good consumer of anything if you don't have cost and quality. And those are the things that the system has been fighting to hide. Even when laws go into effect, they still fight to hide them and make it very difficult. So we have access to cost and quality around the country at almost every provider and facility. And that's why we say to employees, look, you can go wherever you wanna go. Like I said, we don't have a network. So you can continue to go where you're going and we're still gonna save the employer a ton of money for two reasons. One is how we price the care. And the other is those PPO contracts typically have audit prohibition clauses in them. We don't have those contracts. And so, and, and just to give you a couple of stories, there's a hospital down in Texas that was doing a pregnancy test on every admission even if that patient were male, post-hysterectomy, post-menopause, it didn't matter because they were taking a 14 cent test and marking it up 1400 bucks and they knew the carriers couldn't look deep enough to find it. Uh, we had another hospital that was doing um, surgical implants in the spine. They were using surgical screws and they billed for 12 screws, which caught us the, a red flag for me because I know the national average for that type of screw is seven. So I asked for full clinical notes and I got the notes and it said they had only implanted eight. And when I called them and I said, why did you charge for 12 when you implanted eight? They said, well, it came in a pack of 12. We had to throw the other four away because they weren't sterile. And I said, they didn't come in a pack of 12. You ordered them in a pack of 12. The manufacturer lets you order them in any quantity you want, but you order them for way more than the national average. So you knew you could charge way more than the national average. Insurance companies are not only not motivated to find these things, because again, more claims going out the door is more money, but they're prohibited from asking for the information that would allow them. But let's say by some freak of nature, they find one of these things a year or two later, listen to this craziness. If they're fully insured, if it was on a fully insured plan, the carrier gets to keep the full amount. If it's a self-funded plan, I encourage any self-funded employer to go read their administrative services agreement. It's gonna say that if the TPA finds an overpayment, they're gonna be able to keep 40% or 20% or 50% of what they find. So oh. what's their incentive to even look when the less they look, the more money they make and the more that goes out the door erroneously, the more potential money they make down the road. So when it comes to trying to set up a program like this, I mean, obviously they're regular brokers, we'll call them people who sell, and they oftentimes will say, hey, I can also help you set up a self-funded plan if that's what you wanna do. Yeah. Why are they the wrong people to do this because I mean obviously you want people who specialize in a certain process so they have the they they align the incentives but uh, why is that a particularly bad idea I mean, that's my guess is that's what you feel like and and I say this that we you know if our group is looking actually at you know trying to self-direct our health insurance and we have a broker that we've used for years why would we be worried that this broker might not be the person who can sort of pivot and start helping us with a self-funding part of a plan. If all they're bringing to you is the 
the local carrier or two and the national carriers, they're not bringing any value at all. And I will tell you in healthcare and in health insurance, the bigger, the worse. The bigger the insurance company, the worse these metrics occur. The bigger the broker, the bigger the bonuses they're getting on the back end. I mean, you look at a USI and Aon, a Gallagher, they're getting hundreds of millions of dollars in bonuses. Uh, insane, insane amounts. And again, most of them are non-disclosed bonuses. So the, the bigger the health system, the more they do these things. And the bigger the broker, the more they do these things. But at the end of the day, if you're a broker, I if they're talking about the stuff that brokers have been talking about for years, wellness programs and consumer driven health plans, like when are you going to, how many times would you bring your car to the same mechanic to get your air conditioning working when it wasn't working every time? How many times would you go? Cause I feel like employers, they keep sticking their finger in the light socket and they expect that it's not going to electrocute them at some point, but <laughs> the power just keeps getting turned up and up and up every year. It's not going down. So if your broker or consultant doesn't demonstrate to you, that they understand how healthcare is paid for and delivered. If they don't understand how doctors are paid, you know, I mentioned an RVU to you. Most people have no idea what an RVU is. Right. Uh, we talk about patient volumes, how primary care doctors have to see 30 or 40 patients every single day to feed the system. And so here's, so an RVU, for those that don't know, is a measurement of how much revenue that doctor is generating for their healthcare system. And so if I'm a primary care doctor and you come into me with a bad back, my most profitable path by far is to cut you a script for an opioid that's going to deal with the pain. It's going to get you out of my office as quickly as possible so I can move on to the next patient because I got to see 30 or 40 in a day. And then I'm going to refer you to my buddy, the back surgeon, where the most likely outcome is the most expensive outcome. That's how I maximize my profit. Now, do I think doctors intentionally send you to a back surgeon for back surgery when back surgery isn't necessary? No. Do I think most brokers intentionally allow your insurance to inflate every year, even though it benefits them? No. But again, back to that Upton Sinclair quote, if that's what you know, that's how you're paid, you don't look anywhere else. So it's not like you're intentionally sending them there knowing it's the worst option. You just don't know that a better option exists because you haven't looked. And so that's the way I think of brokers. That's the, that's the way I think of doctors. Um, and this notion, one other thing that I want to talk about doctors, I hear hospital administrators and doctors all the time refer to the insurance companies as the payer. I want every doctor to hear me when I say this. The payer is staring you in the face when you're writing that prescription. That's the payer of healthcare because their, their paycheck is impacted by whatever you write on that prescription pad. Their out-of-pocket is is affected by whatever you write on that prescription pad. Their future wage increases are impacted by whatever you put on that prescription pad. By I, I think that when doctors and hospitals call the carriers the payer, they're allowing themselves to disassociate themselves from the financial damage that the care is about to do. And I don't care how good your advice is, how good your prescription is for that problem. If they can't afford it, you might as well not have written that prescription at all. If we don't start to take cost into account, which we haven't been, particularly doctors, we're giving care that they're never going to be able to utilize. Yeah, no, that's a lot of truth to that. And uh, finally, when it comes to quality, I hear this word thrown around all the time, especially the last 10 years. It's been, it's, I feel like you can't get away from it. It's, yeah. well, we want high quality, low cost care. We want, we want to do, uh, we want to have a new process that provides higher quality to our patients. Quality, yep. quality, quality. I mean, you hear that. It's not just in medicine. You hear that all sort of in the industry, all over in um, yep. commerce. But uh, I've talked to um, some, not a broker, but someone who 
help. I guess he was sort of a broker. I'm trying to remember what he was. A cons- he was a healthcare consultant. Anyway, okay. he would say, generally speaking, in healthcare, if you were trying to find some high quality care, he said quality is it's very difficult to sort of define. It's sort it's difficult to measure in many ways. You know, you ask who's a high quality physician, for instance, and he said the one thing you can tell is you can tell who's a low quality physician. Like you know that you can usually the last the bottom twenty five percent. It's pretty obvious they're not any good bottom 25% of any sort of industry, hospital, surgeons, whatever, you can tell that aside from that, it's really kind of tough. It's, you know, the top 75% are somewhere in there and, you know, maybe some people have good outcomes or bad outcomes, but how do you, you know, how do you, as someone who's finding all this stuff for your, for your clients, how do you know who is a high quality provider, high quality hospital, et cetera, and that you're not accidentally finding one that's maybe, you know, low quality in the high quality yeah, uh, yeah. 75% or something. Well, we use a lot of tools, but let me start off by explaining to you how and why cost and quality are inversely related in healthcare. We often think of higher cost equals higher quality, right? Cars, homes, right. meals, we expect that. But in healthcare, they're inversely related. And the number one factor that determines that is frequency. The more frequently a doctor and a hospital do a particular procedure, Surprise, surprise, the better they do it and the more efficiently they do it. Sure. So, uh, you know, we avoid, and, and I have data to back this up, but we avoid at all costs the general hospital because they're a jack of all trades and a master of none. And if you're going into a general hospital for orthopedic surgery, for example, you're also exposing yourself to COVID and pneumonia and doctors and nurses that treat cancer and all sorts of other ailments. Uh, and nobody's good at anything. They're all, you know, mediocre at everything. And the cost is so high because they have to have those ventilators on standby and the ICU on standby, things that you may never need or use, but you still have to pay your share of because you went there versus go to an, an orthopedic specialty surgical center. That's all they do. And if you call up to verify your, uh, your, uh, appointment for surgery on next Tuesday and you're like, <clears throat> is it still on for Tuesday? They're like, whoa, did you just cough? Uh, you know, if you're not feeling well, don't just, we'll put it off. Just come back when you're better. So th- that's part of it. Now, if you actually look at cost and quality, which we have access to, you will see those same things occur. And the higher quality physician and facility is almost always at the lower end of the price spectrum. Now, how do we look at quality? Well, listen, I believe that Doctors are so afraid of being measured on their quality. But if they don't, if if every specialty doesn't come together and say, okay, as cardiologists, this is what we think a comprehensive list of quality metrics should look like. As orthopedics, this is what it's orthopods, this is what it should look like. Then someone's going to put that on them. And they're not, they're not, not going to like the way it's done. So I, I implore any doctor listening to this to, to stand up and say, we have to be judged on quality. We Think of what you buy yourself, doctor. Do you expect to have quality information available to you when you buy a car? Like, of course you do. But I want quality information when I'm going to undergo surgery. So we use multiple tools that we can look at, the facility quality and the provider quality. Um, in the provider quality side, um, we actually use a service called Quantros, and they look at billions and billions of claims data for decades. And I can actually see, I, I can look up a specific provider, and I can look up like a DRG of 470, for example, major hip or knee replacement without major complications, probably the most common DRG in an employer's uh, data set. I could see not just how frequently they do it, 
but I can actually see age group, gender. And so you know how I mentioned in our plans, we waive the out of pocket when we steer people to where we know the quality is high and the cost is reasonable. A lot of people say, well, don't you just have a list? Can you just give me a list? And I say, no, because if one person needed a knee arthroscopy and he's a 28 year old former college athlete in perfect shape. And the other employee needs a knee arthroscopy and she's 63 years old. She's morbidly obese and type two diabetic female. Like, that's going to be two different skill sets of surgeons, right? right? So, you know, or I'm not going to send them to an orthopod when they need a hand surgery, which is very delicate, very, you know, precise. And you want someone that does hand surgery every day, all day long. So uh, that's why we get very specific. But the difference in cost, and I'll give you this one actual example, is a hysterectomy. Most women go to their OBGYN for a hysterectomy, but here's some stats. There's 550,000 hysterectomies done each year. There's 58,000 OBGYNs. That means each does eight or nine a year. And because they do so few, they're not very good at it, right? Think about a, a sports player, professional sports. You think they, they only practice eight or nine times a year? No, they practice eight or nine times a week, right? So that OBGYN relies on the techniques they learned in medical school to perform surgery, which is open surgery, typically. So they're doing open hysterectomies, which is not good for the patient, higher infection rates. Here's another crazy part, though. If they did go to learn laparoscopic, they'd have to take dozens and dozens of hours of training, spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on additional equipment. And then the average insurance plan considers that to be a less invasive surgery. So they're going to get a lower reimbursement rate. Why would they do that? So we have a relationship with a, a, a network of gynecological surgeons who actually think that obstetrics and gynecology should be split into two different specialties. And each of these doctors do three to 400 hysterectomies a year. They have a 97% plus laparoscopic rate. And despite the national average of a hysterectomy being around 38,000, we have a prearranged, pre-negotiated, bundled price of $11,000. Now, bundled is important because bundled means if there's a mistake, a readmission, a redo, that's on the facility and the doctor, not the insurance company. So I say to employers all the time, would you rather your employee go to the $38,000 place where they're going to pay $5,000 and you're going to pay $33,000? Or would you instead consider allowing them to go to the $11,000 place? You pay $11,000, they pay nothing. They get back to work in two days on Advil only instead of two weeks on opioids. Like it's better for everyone. And, and just so everyone knows, I don't just uh, talk the talk. I, I mentioned earlier that I had surgery at the surgery center of Oklahoma for an inguinal hernia. And my wife had her hysterectomy done by the, the doctors that I was just speaking of. So we, we do it as well. We believe in it. Yeah, well, that's it, it, there's so many things that occur in in life that you think their incentives should be aligned. And you think that that this is one of those situations where you'd have people, the employers obviously want lower lower costs. But they also want their employees back to work. They want them healthy. They, that's a provided benefit. That's obviously what the employee wants. And you think that there'd be plenty of places that would provide that service. But because of our strange sort of incentivized system in healthcare, it's not worked out that way as it should. Um, Correct. I really appreciate the conversation. It was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Um, where's a good place for people to find out more about you and about you know, what you're writing, social media, those sorts of things? Uh, LinkedIn, I'm, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, there's a few books out there that um, either speak to what we do or speak exactly of what we do. And I'll give a couple of shout outs. One is a, a new book by Marshall Allen called Never Pay the First Bill. Uh, very telling on hospital billing and how you can lower your own out of pocket, even if it truly is your deductible or something you owe. And then I think if you really want to learn some of the dysfunction, actually, from a provider side, The Price We Pay by Dr. Marty McCary. Um, and uh, that's also an amazing book. And 
We're also putting on an in-person conference in February uh, in Phoenix, where we want doctors, employers, brokers, and advisors to all come together. We're going to show everyone what we're doing. We're going to talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, and how other people, we want to spread this. We want more employers to do this. If the, the small and mid-sized employers are going to be the ones that fix healthcare if it gets fixed at all. It's not going to be the large employers. It's not going to be the government. It's going to be the small and mid-sized family-owned businesses that fix this. So we can show you how to have immediate impact on your employees, your bottom line, and get your employees healthier and back to work quicker than they're doing right now. And where would people find that conference? Uh, also on LinkedIn, or you can go to ePower. So our, my firm's ePoweredBenefits.com, E-P-O-W-E-R-E-D Benefits.com. Um, you can, you'll find a link to that there, but we're also posting it up uh, pretty regularly to uh, how to attend and the details. Sure. Yeah. And I, I, w- along with you, I agree that legislatively is not, this is not going to fix healthcare. We're not going to find some big bill that's going to come out of DC. <laughs> it seems to be less and less things that are useful that come out of DC or state mm-hmm. capitals. Uh, but I do think that with the tremendous cost savings right now, we're at a point where there's so much incentive to actually solve this problem that people are actually solving it. I think actually it's going to fix things. It It's almost like the uh, Uber, sort of the argument for Uber or Airbnb, right? Like once things, once the taxi business just seems too expensive and you find a, an alternative that is you know, one-tenth or less of the cost, people have no choice but to adopt it. And I think that's, I think that's where we're going. I'm much more optimistic about medicine than I was a few years ago because of people I've talked to like you and just, I think the incentives are just so tremendous right now in the savings. Well, and there's just two last things I'd like to say. One is we do work very closely with providers. And in particular, we love a model of primary care called direct primary care. And uh, when we build direct primary care, a plan around that direct primary care provider, we remove all pre-certification, all prior authorization, all step therapy from that doctor. If that doctor says it's medically necessary, they do not need permission from anyone. It's covered automatically and covered in full by that patient's health plan, number one. But I, you know, I, we've spoken about saving money, but how much are we talking about here? So I wanna give you a metric. I'd like for everyone who's listening to this to either get this information or if you know it in your head, calculate it, super simple. Over a 12-month period, how much did you spend on your company's healthcare? So it's if you're fully insured, just what was your premium? If you're self-insured, what was your claims plus all your fixed costs over a 12-month period? And then I want you to divide that by the average number of employees you had on your plan, not family members, just employees. And that's going to give you your per employee per year cost. The Kaiser Family Foundation says that that's around $16,000 per employee per year. Our plans run from between 3,300 and 7,700 per employee per year. I'm throwing my number out there for anyone that's listening. So <laughs> if you're running higher than that, there's a lot of savings to be had. Right. And I really appreciate the conversation. I think, you know, this is something that people need to look into. And um, Free Market Medical Alliance is a great op- resource, too, I believe, where the people talking about the same thing that you're talking about today. So. David Caterno from ePower Benefits, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.